Welcome to Archinect Sessions. I'm Amelia Taylor-Hawkberg, and today, Thursday, December 10th, 2015, Ken Kunze and I speak with friend of the podcast, Denise Scott-Brown, on the occasion of her, in conjunction with her husband and collaborator, Robert Venturi, being awarded the AIA's Gold Medal for 2016. We last spoke with Denise on episode number 39, when the Venon Venturi house hit the market. Not only is this the first time in the award's 108-year history that it's been given jointly, in recognition of two individuals whose work together has indelibly influenced the profession in theory and practice, but it is also the first time a living woman has received the award. Julia Morgan was posthumously given the gold medal in 2014. And with such milestones come celebration, reflection, and speculation. Denise spoke with us about the politics of the award, what these kinds of accolades mean for the profession and its future, and how her notions of creativity and architectural agency have developed throughout a lifetime of practice. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So Denise Scott Brown, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us on this happy occasion of you and Robert receiving the 2016 Gold AIA Medal. It's obviously big news, both for the fact that you are the first female living architect to receive the prize, and it's also the first joint award given to both you and Robert. So this is obviously a momentous occasion, but I was wondering in the whole context of this award and the fact that it is the first time the award has been given out to as a joint award. You've spoken um, adamantly and passionately before about the notion of recognizing joint creativity, in particular in your comments on the petition to have your name added to the Pritzker ceremony that Robert was nominated for in 1991. So I was wondering if you could maybe just give your personal understanding and, and what you feel you're advocating for when you speak about the idea of joint creativity. I think it's a tangible reality that people who work in offices know about, that bright ideas come from a lot of sources if they're allowed to, depending on how the office is set up, it might happen more or less. When young people write to say how much they've loved working for us, the theme is usually being, you really gave us challenges. And my feeling as a teacher and also a principal, I love giving people challenges because it, it sets them on their mettle and they rise to the occasion and they just know work is too hard also if they feel that here's something they can really do and make a difference. So that is one way in which offices are organized, but some there are some other ways too where there's a, there's a sole designer and everyone else is looked upon as a helper in one way or another. And there are some where um, probably there's so much consensus seeking that not much happens. I, you know, I don't know. But there's, to me, some of the most exciting things in an office is when there is a kind of a ping-pong of ideas. And it certainly happens between Bob and me and also between us and other people, depending, again, on the setup. But when someone has an idea, someone else sees its, its importance and where it belongs and then develops it and adds to it, and then there's the third sees something in that, and the thing goes quickly across the table. That's a very, very exciting situation. Now, having said that, I feel we don't know all that much about creativity in architecture, and I feel that people like the Pritzkers who have shown good faith, it was a very ethical thing to want to give a prize in architecture, and to honor Lewis Mumford, if Mumford had been there to lead it, it might have gone in very different directions. The direction I think they could go in, even now, is to fund a, a conference and some thought and various people to contribute their experience of what joint creativity is. There are psychiatrists who write about it. There are other fields that write about it. 
and there's architects who write about it. And putting that all together, we'd know much more what we're talking about. And we'd have case studies. I know of one book which describes how various projects and architects' firms were organized. I don't remember its name now. It's by Gilbert Herbert and Mark Donchin. And it takes four different firms and four different projects and analyzes how the decisions were made in four very different ways. We need more like that. So that the, the answers to the questions about what is joint creativity and how could it work are really, we need to find that out by having more data before us and analyzing what people are calling joint creativity or the fun of working together or various different names and see what they have in common. There may be many ways to do it. And I think that that gets at what the core kind of transition period that is happening now in, in the world of architecture, but also in the just in the, the impression that people get from these awards, because while we have this kind of desire to elevate the role of women in the field for the purpose of giving better opportunities and overall just for, towards egalitarian ends, I think that there's still a question for some people of whether these awards are truly worthwhile and what it means to receive one of these awards. So whether or not it should be something to strive for and what happens when something like this happens, when this watershed event where a woman is finally award, given the award, what does that mean overall is something that is wrapped up so much in the politics of the award. So what do you feel and both reflecting on your on the period before the award was given and now after in the aftermath? Has your opinions on the overall utility of the of awards like the um, gold medal on what their role is in the field of architecture for both incentivizing people to become part of the profession and to work towards a certain goal or a certain ideal, or simply to incent motivate people already within the profession towards some other end? Um, you could write three books on that. <laughs> <laughs> One level, I can tell you my feelings about awards over the years and how they've grown. I've also got my considered opinion now and my thoughts about the role they have in the profession, all those things. Starting with the first, I didn't, and I'm sure very few people come into architecture saying, gee, if I become an architect, I might get a prize. <laughs> Perhaps not explicitly, right, but they might in reverse not feel like they've really ascended to the stature that they would like unless they are given that accolade. Well, that's at the end when you're looking at what you're getting and not getting, but at the beginning, you came in because of joy in something, bliss in something, and it's different for different people. Mine's a very complicated one, but some people just love designing. They just they adore that. Other people adore seeing what they thought of becoming reality. We had one young architect who came into our office. He, just, he said, I only do elevations. <laughs> we could see very good for you that way, but that was his bliss. I only do elevations. So there are all those things, and they weren't prizes. They were, here's something I want to spend my life doing because I adore doing it. Mm. I say, don't forget that. And if in an office you work at that and you learn, in fact, political action about how to get to do the things you really feel you can be good at doing in the office, and it consists of showing to the boss how valuable it will be to the firm if you can do these things, and then show your appreciation and et cetera, et cetera. So then these are the prizes as you grow up in architecture. And by the way, the whole issue of prizes 
doesn't come up until you're working on big enough projects, as far as I can see. And yet there's a whole lot of people who love working as a one-person one office or two-person office or a, a little group of women who, who want to run a practice and run their lives the way they want, and they have joy in what they're doing, but it's not going to come above the, the radar in, in, you know, in, in notice of the projects that they do. And maybe the boards they're getting are, are wonderful. As I've, you know, when I taught, I thought I would really, really be so sad when I went into practice and missed the teaching. Well, I was doing the teaching and the practice too, and then I could, I, I adored being in practice. And the, the rewards were that clients trusted me for jobs. They wanted to hear what I said. We had fun together. I got to travel all over the place, not as a tourist, but as a, 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 a valued friend helping people achieve the things that closest to their heart. Gee, the rewards and all of that. So on one level, I've been a very happy person without a ward. And then on another level, of course, there's also the, the sorrows, the sorrows of not getting the job. Oh, that's a blow. If you really, really invested in it, and they give it to someone else. It doesn't have to be an award to give you, you know, almost a heart attack that you didn't get the thing. You have to learn how to nurture yourself very much, not even when you're not getting awards. Right. And I would hope that someone, and I would assume that, of course, someone like you would, after you've received something like this, you're not exactly, you know, jumping and bouncing off the walls because you've had that feeling of affirmation. Like that, that this award is not here to affirm you in any way, but instead it's here to kind of give a, a larger impression to the outside world, to the world outside of the profession. I'm coming to that too, but you see, I do want to say, in fact, despite all of that, and despite having come to a conclusion, like take the Pritzker Prize, I think of the fact that Groucho Marx never <laughs> actually got an award. He was given a lifetime award. It just meant the people who were judging for the for the Oscar, were not able to look at any of his artistic works and judge them. Mm. They just were not able to do that. Well, what does it say about Groucho, but it, what does it say about the Oscar? It says the Oscar people just you know, shouldn't have been judging him. He was way, way beyond them. And so the fact that he did not get that prize, in fact, devalues the prize, not him. And I feel the same thing about the Pritzker. I feel that they, they were led in the right direction by Jay Pritzker, who admired Lewis Mumford. They were led down the wrong path by the architect who took over, Philip Johnson, and he valorized um, a very small section of architecture in a very narrow way, which Mumford, if you go read what he said, even about our greatest great, Le Corbusier and um, Frank Lloyd Wright, you'd see he wouldn't have approved of that direction. So my feeling is the Pritzker has been devalued for that reason, in the same way as the RIBA gold medal was devalued because they never gave it to the Smithsons. So then if you are in that situation, again, you can see that it's sad, but it's not going to kill you when you think about the fact that the awards are um, set up, I think, for good reasons, to encourage architects, but also to promote the whole field of architecture for everyone by showing we have great heroes. Our trouble is sometimes we don't get our heroes right or we don't have wide enough categories, and I think that's what I'm saying. But now for the AIA, our long, long experience starts back in the probably the late 1970s when a, a good friend of 
ours, and his uncle, who was a, a, a senior architect in the South, wanted to nominate Bob Venturi for the gold medal. And Bob said, not without Denise. And the look on that chap's face was absolutely comical. <laughs> Surprised beyond belief. How could you have even said that? And that, you know, that's how we started in this thing. And then we had the back and forth and back and forth of sending in nominations that were never opened. People of the AIA staff have since told me they were there then and they felt so sad when that was happening. And then we kind of gave up and I said, look, is it... Just don't bother about it. We're getting, look, we're going to Japan and people are showing us things and we're working in ways we'd never thought. Those are our rewards. So we kind of let it slide. And then Fred Schwartz, who was by then really very, very ill, he said to me, oh, I should say one thing. The AIA Massachusetts chapter headed by um, Carol Burns, they tried mightily. Mightily. And at that time, it came up that maybe Bob was being quixotic to insist on my being there. And I got the impression that maybe I was being selfish by holding my husband back and by saying I want to be alongside him. And so there's a bad feeling around where we felt bad about ourselves and the actions we were taking because they seemed to be like that. And so we kind of stopped until Frederick came to me and said, Denise, look, let me try to help. The thing has to move. And I said, Frederick, you're ill. Don't do it. You know, it's all right. It's all right. And he said, it was wonderful. He said, Denise, I'm good at this thing. Hmm. I thought of Fred in that film that Jim Venturi made about moving the leap house. And you see Fred, he's a New Yorker, bald head. He's sitting there. He's on the phone. He's talking about insurance for this little house being barged up the river to Glen Cove, and he's saying, do you think it'll fall off the boat? Is that what the, you want the insurance to represent in case it falls off the barge? It won't fall off the barge. And you hear him this on this side, on that side. And I said, he's a very great arguer and manipulator. I'm, I'm sure if he says he can do it, he can do it. And he did do it. He went to all the local chapters, all the, all the state chapters, we got an assent from the majority of state chapters and then went to Washington. And that's how he got the thing moving. And um, then eventually people said, well, two people can be creative together. An idea can grow in, in two very closely associated people. Well, that's probably the system of ping pong I'm talking about. Mm. I think it can belong with more people. But we were very, very happy it was moving at all. And then when that happened... The first person they they gave the medal to after that was a, a woman who was dead, and I wrote a letter. And there, Julia Donahoe came into the picture, and we met her, and she was so good. Uh, um, Fred told me on the quiet, look, Julia will never be nominated. I have it on good authority. And Fred was wrong. Julia was nominated. Uh, yes, Julia Morgan was nominated. By, and it was through the work of Julia Donahoe. So we were very, very happy indeed when Julia said she would help us. We were very thrilled, too, that, that uh, uh, Billy Chen would be uh, around twice. It was enormously painful for Billy, Billy when she had to call me and say we didn't get it. I was so touched. She was weeping more than... And, and I wasn't weeping. <laughs> I've been through so many rejections. I wasn't weeping, but she was. And so the passion in all of this has been 
the reward, you know. It's mm. really marvelous. Now we have got it to, and when um, Elizabeth True Richter called on the phone, and I knew we had it because otherwise it would have been Billy again, but it wasn't. It, and there was clapping in the background, and she said, well, how are you? And I was bantering by that time because... I knew it had to be the right thing. And I said, well, I don't know. How are you? <laughs> and then said, well, I'm very happy that you got the prize. And I said, well, then I'm very, very well, too. <laughs> and then the whole group started clapping again. Well, those were wonderful moments. They were such fun. And it, the sense of um, everyone is so, so happy for us, and we are very, very happy. That makes it terribly important. But then there's... Also, when I saw that list of about 20 firms of couples who would be in line over the years coming mm. for that medal, or maybe in line for the medal, I said, Bob wasn't quixotic and I wasn't selfish. It was something that was for much more than us. It was for a whole lot of people and for a future and for a new atmosphere in architecture. And we've seen that. We saw that wonderful joy at that phone call, and we've seen another way to be architects because it's a mixture of more diversity in architecture. And my experience of diversity in architecture has been, we had a fun firm, but when we had a lot of Asians and a lot of women, not as many African Americans as we wanted, that was hard, and we never succeeded as much as I tried there. But when we had this firm of such diversity, I think we served our clients better. And I think we had more fun. And that notion of striving for diversity. And I think that it's very important that you're able to tell the story of how you and, and uh, Bob went through these kinds of ups and downs of self-reflection and trying to figure out how to advocate on behalf of yourselves while also knowing that your actions and how the award might end up would have dire implications for the future of the profession and such. I think coming to that personal decision and personal understanding is, is really valuable for people to know. I think there's also a kind of interesting connection here, or perhaps it's kind of an interesting tension in that you want to encourage diversity and you speak about how hard you work to do that in the firm while also giving people their just dues and also honoring this idea of joint creativity. And kind of purely as a coincidence to the news of you and Robert receiving the gold medal, there we posted on Archonnect this other piece of news referring to an incident at the Royal Institute of British Architects where a woman had filed a complaint against the institution claiming that she had been subjected to forms of institutional racism for basically losing an election that she felt she was qualified for and that under the an act in uh, that kind of encourages what is effectively affirmative action in the UK in architecture that she should have been awarded the, the position on the basis that she and her competitor were equal, all things considered, other than the fact that she happened to be black. And then with under the specific um, affirmative action clause that it was the on the burden of the organization to support that minority position and award her the position. And I think this this um, case that is ongoing and is kind of operates um, around these same discussions of encouraging diversity, encouraging new ideas of professional practice and also institutional responsibility within these ideas. It also brings up the idea of advocating on behalf of people who are not automatically given attention. And I think this, there's an interesting question here when we're trying to both encourage for that position, but also troubling ourselves with whether or not it's worth advocating for that in the current structure or whether a new structure should be proposed. And I think oftentimes when women or people who are not given the 
equal amounts of attention and, and value in the profession speak up about these discrepancies, oftentimes they're told, just go start your own thing, right? If you don't agree with the, the rules of the game being played, start your own game. It's not worth fighting against an inherently broken system. And instead, you should strike out on your own. The set world is never equal. Right, exactly. That's my feeling. But, you know, again, there's a whole lot of strands in what you've just given rise to now. The RIBA gold medal, we have been rejected for that year after year after year. And I think the English version is based a great deal on ideology and the modernist ideology and the passion about being true to that ideology. And I've often wondered, because I studied with people and some of my good old friends at the RIBA, rather in England in architecture, I think were also the ones who blackballed me. And I think and it's because of ideology. In other words, the fact that we like it and could conceive of working with everyday environment. Um, one great old friend, and he said he's, I'm his oldest friend, and I see why he says to some extent he's right. He also said, but how can Denise believe that crap? <laughs> he and I were, he was a year above me at the AA. I shifted mightily. As, as a modernist, I took in aspects of modern um, beliefs which led me to say you really have to look at things other than the, the narrow scope of what you like and see if they're possible and feasible. And I learned in America good ways of, of approaching problems like that, mostly from the social planners. But um, they didn't shift at all, and they still haven't. And one of my friends wrote me to say, Denise, how can you be using those dreadful columns? <laughs> That's the columns we borrowed from the existing National Gallery and used on the new one. Again, he was in the same class with me, and he's outraged at what I was doing. But these were for ideological reasons. And I often wondered, why did I become a free spirit there, and they became ideologues? And my feeling is that was to do with the huge, huge deprivations of the war. And they came out of that war with nothing, and the bombed cities and bombed lives and lost relatives and lack of you know, hold-ups and education and you name it, the British suffered all of that and not enough food. So I suspect in those early years, those students clung to ideology for that reason. And I did too, I think, at that stage. But I built on it and went further with it, they've held on to it as if, if they lose that, they'll lose everything. Ken, did you have a question? Yeah. You know, Denise, I'm reflecting on your work and, and thinking about our last conversation. And the one thing that I remember you speaking about is how Robert's mother's house was deeply connected to the political climate and the situation during that time period of our history. And I was reflecting on there, there always seemed to be a sense of optimism in your work about America. And, and I wonder when you're reflecting on where you are now and where you've where you were during the 60s do you, do you ever feel that that you would be revisiting or seeing some of the same issues going on in the culture today you know i the whole thing we went through in the 1960s i see at the political level i see obama facing similar issues like we worked out in in social planning and that you could just couldn't speak about the poor Speak about the poor, and you just lose everyone except the poor. And yet, it's so so important. And how do you how do you deal with that and not speak about it? So I was watching 
Obama very carefully to see what he does. And there it was. It was and all this, everyone working with him seeking to do the same thing. You talk about the middle classes and all those who want to be middle class. And I'm so, um, I'm so admiring that they worked out how to do that. And they say it every time they say the middle classes, they add that and they mean the poor. And so I'm seeing the same things come up, but you know, I see parallels with South Africa too. And I'm amused that there's a new South African comedian on the daily <laughs> show. <laughs> it's the same thing. Um, Americans would be horrified to hear me say that um, there's so many parallels between um, the Tea Party and the Nationalists. And for the same reasons. And then here was Bernie Sanders last night saying, you have to understand them. They're scared people. They've, felt they've lost so much. Now a demagogue is leading them to scapegoat. As a Jew, I know all about scapegoating. It happens when anything goes bad. Politicians turn on us and say it's all their fault. Now they're doing it to Mexican-Americans and whoever Trump wants to do it to next. And Bernie Sanders was saying... You should explain, and he's talking about the Reagan Democrats, you see. It's the same people, and it's the same people as the Afrikaners. They're the people who've been poor, who've been dispossessed, have been themselves ill-treated, and then everyone's giving them a scapegoat instead of giving them sources from their problems by good policies. I've been talking to a lot of friends that I have, and I said, you know, even some who are more libertarian, I said, you know, the really the one thing that has that the system has managed to do to divide us is to use religion and fear as a weapon to kind of we're on the same side of a lot of the economic and social issues, but they use these tools to kind of push us into different camps. And then we point at each other. British invented divide and rule. So you turn very poorest against the next poorest. And it's playing out now in American cities. It's um and it was like this in Africa. It's um African Americans against the police. The police, um are, I believe many of them and many of the kind of rank and file are white people, um, of groups that were slower to have upward mobility. Or part of them stayed behind and didn't get upwardly mobile and now are hurting even more because of the fact that there's less and less of a middle class. And there they are, fighting away um, African-Americans and probably Irish-Americans, largely, but not only, in the police. And um, the, the, it was, yeah, the British colonial rulers were happy to have that happen because then they could rule them because they had divided them. But I think that you could, you could say that liberal Democrats are doing that too to some extent. Denise, in thinking about that, how does a designer, how do, how do you and Robert then find that optimism in your designs when, when a culture is so disaffected as it is today? And, and it seems that pessimism, you know, after post-World War II and your work, it seemed that, you know, even though it was in a climate of civil rights struggle, there was always forward-looking optimism. And even in that struggle, there was still this optimism. It seems like today there's such pessimism in this country. How do you find those good places to uh, find that level of creativity together? Well, you know, we're not practicing now. And that's probably a simple answer. We, I think it was probably you know, something like 2005 to 2007, we, we just stopped 
we have our successor firm. We spent 15 years planning and running that succession. I'm very proud of it. And now they are a separate firm. And I haven't been in the office for a long time. And I've been doing other things. I've been writing and talking. Writing is my second best thing. Being an architect and practicing and working with clients is my best thing. But I can't do that anymore. I'm pretty happy with what I am doing. But, you know, I, I worked between planning and architecture for many, many years. But then when Reaganomics and Nixonomics took over and the funding was removed, they reached a point, 1988, where I said, I can't do another inner city urban planning project because I can't make my firm lose as much money as we lost the last one we did. And just as that happened, um, so Dartmouth approached us and asked me if I would be work on the campus plan of Dartmouth. And I found that I was taking my planning skills and helping um, relate town and gown and finding ways for the, the campus to understand the needs of small-scale merchants, for example, and um, based on the work I'd done before. And I had a situation where my planning skills and my architecture skills and glory be right up to large building projects could come out of my planning thought. And that's been a delight for me from 1988 to 2005. But I wasn't doing urban planning. I was doing NGO planning, you could say, non-profit institution planning related to the city and related to educational needs and related to all of the groups of campuses. And I felt very much in my element and very fulfilled doing that. And I suppose if I hadn't got too old, I would still be doing that and I would be helping different groups to face these issues to the extent I could. But I don't know about the question of, um, of um, as an architect facing the questions of poverty, I have strong feelings about um, the way in which housing should not be faced from the point of view of poverty groups. Um, that, that's another long story. And I, and I would be spelling that out, I think, that almost all our nostrums as architects, not only um, the, the, the visions of the uh, right years when it's not necessary and not only um, even the stuff that that we were doing as advocate planners, so that, that's more along the lines. But getting enough housing done seems to take you away from architecture and make you a houser, and you start thinking of financial methods. And um, those are the things that, you know, the things that uh, cause Levitown to be built. Those are the methods that will get the level of mass housing and the millions that's needed, not anything to do with how you construct housing. And that's a hard question for architects to learn. Where do they belong then? An architect in Pakistan explained to us how the city of Karachi had solved the low-income housing problem through graft and corruption, but totally solved it. And it was an amazing story. And I said, we can't afford to ignore things like that because we're not succeeding. And so that's what I would be talking about, I think. But then I wouldn't be being an architect. I'd also be quite unhappy. Denise, one last question for you I, from, my, uh, from myself. Are there any architects today that kind of pique your interest or that you kind of find that are particularly uh, of interest to you today? Well, I'm not up to... I don't keep up. I just can't. I've got a 
do my writing, write my old-fashioned things, because they probably are by now, and I really can't watch to see what's happening that's exciting at that level. I have a friend in Geneva who's an architect who became an expert in um, what you do in, at, about housing in disaster. You, you go to a country and you have to see how you help it organize to deal with a disastrous flood where millions of houses have been lost and lives. And she and I had some interesting talks about uh, what the, not architecture anymore, but what she's doing to lead to where you can help, really help people that way. Um, as for architecture itself, all I've been doing is um, nurturing some young architects who seem interesting, who've come, who've worked for us or worked, Yeah, you know, we have this handy person job where Fred Schwartz was the first one. We now have our 42nd one, or we just did last summer. But I'm looking at some of their work, but I just don't know about um, architects today. I, I think the notion of smart buildings and smart facades is an interesting direction where the facade gets very, very thin indeed, but it's few, mo few molecules between glass do what's needed, and then you've got also the question of what you put on the outside. There's a, an architect I watch in England, Richard Payne. I like his work very much. But these are very small-scale architects who I don't know whether they'll come above the, the radar and do enough work to be noticed. Denise, I would say actually that what you and Ken were speaking about earlier about having this kind of burnout within the architecture community in the Reagan and post-Reagan era of having to do projects that you felt were important, like such as um, doing work in more underprivileged areas, but also finding that like, simply the money wasn't there and knowing that you wouldn't be able to really continue supporting the firm if you were to only devote yourself to such projects. I think that now, at least if we're going to judge by things like the Chicago Architecture Biennial and a lot of what we see coming through our, our filters and our connect is that youthful practices and, and new and upcoming practices are very much, or at least much more concerned and interested in practicing in these, in these issues of social welfare and not putting it in a term of, say, this is welfare, but putting it in a term of, this is just, this should be the status quo. This, should, this is something that should be extended to everyone and attaching their attentions and their expertise to perhaps not solving, but engaging with these issues in a more fresh and interesting way and a diverse way and trying to not prescribe a single solution to any scenario, but to just engage with it and hope that through the architect's education and through their particular authority and expertise that they might be able to help move things along. Architects' holistic education, it leaves out whole things that I think are important, but it is much more holistic than almost anyone else. Absolutely. So being, and that's why they got to be head of planning teams very often. But they were combining the wrong things because it still wasn't a broad enough education for what they were trying to do. And I think that there are some architects now who are saying, well, you came up against the money problem, but somehow they're going to solve that problem because they're going to see fundraising as integral to what they're doing and part of it, and it will just come along with everything else. Mm -hmm. that, that sounds like a nice idea. We worked for nothing for Alice Lipscomb for four years because... We just thought that that's what we should do and we could afford to do it. But we couldn't then do a whole large planning um, project for Memphis, which instead of taking nine months, took more than three years on the same salary that they were paying us for nine months. 
We just couldn't do that. Mm. And we did that. And so we lost copiously. I said, I can't do it again. And so I would hope that things, which may seem like a small drop in the bucket, but something like the AIA's gold medal going to two people and recognizing that joint collaboration and that equal effort uh, to put into these projects. I do think that instances like this will work towards a overall changing of the evaluation of the profession towards something that does put money behind these projects. I know it's very wishful thinking at this point in time, but I really do believe that things like this that can recognize multiple people's roles and influence and significances in a given problem and situation that is very difficult to solve will eventually lead towards more focused on that issue and, 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 and acknowledging how widespread the effect of that issue is. So there's one other thing. I, I was at a conference that may have been the one I was in in Mexico a few years ago. They were saying that there are some architecture schools where your thesis, you have to show how you funded it as well. Right. Yes. And it's that kind of thing I think you're talking about. And I also have this picture of the architect not as at the helm of the boat going down, the ship's captain going down with the boat, but as a, a surfer, a wily surfer catching waves <laughs> and using the waves to take her or him where they, where they want to go or near where they want to go. A surfer who also has a, an ability to actually hopefully guide that wave where it will actually go. So Denise, I don't mean to, you know, graft off of your metaphor. I appreciate it so much, but I really do. Um, we're really so thankful that you took the time to come and talk to us. And please extend our congratulations to Robert as well. We're, we're so pleased that you both won the award. It's so kind of you to have asked. And I hope that you've got from me what you wanted. Absolutely. And more. And we're waiting for all of those books that you're going to write on all of the questions we asked you, because we, I think I was, if I wasn't keeping count incorrectly, I think we have at least four books that you could write on the subjects that we brought up here. So I look forward to reading those in the future. Well, I'll do my best. <laughs> Sounds great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Archonnect Sessions, episode 45. Danilo Voinov edited this episode and Paul Petrunia and I are the producers of Archonnect Sessions. If you have any questions about the podcast, you can reach us on Twitter at ARC Sessions, that's at A-R-C-H Sessions, or with the hashtag Archonnect Sessions. You can also email us at connect at archonnect.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to us on iTunes. We also produce a weekly interviews-only podcast called One to One, which you can subscribe to as well on iTunes. Those new episodes come out every Monday. If you love the show, please consider writing us a review. Thanks again for listening.